Welcome to the Teachers Podcast in association with Classroom Secrets, the podcast that's here to help teachers. Whether it's discussing the latest issues in education or sharing top tips for use in the classroom, if you work in education or want to know more about the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Now, please welcome your host, former teacher, life work balance advocate and successful business owner, Claire Riley. Hello everyone and thank you for tuning in. In this episode, I interview Liz Davison, the head teacher at Bondon Primary School in Bradford. I think you'll find the episode really insightful. Liz has two experiences of academies, uh, being forced into joining one and then choosing to join one. We talk about the differences between academies and state schools and Liz shares her thoughts on school budgets, you know, what the challenges are in her schools and how it's affecting children and staff. So during the interview, she shares a really interesting story about going on a school trip and being stranded abroad during the 2010 Ash Cloud saga with the children. And this would just be my worst nightmare, but Liz does not seem phased one, one little bit. And one of the things that I really loved about this interview was how honest and open Liz is about being ahead and the challenges that her school is facing at the moment. So I really hope you enjoy the interview because I found Liz really interesting to listen to and she shared a lot of a lot of interesting things that I hope that you enjoy. So I'm really interested to know about your journey throughout teaching because you've been teaching for, um, well, in education for quite a long time. Um, so can you tell me your journey into teaching and, and throughout your career so far? So I started, my first year of teaching was 1986 um, and I went, I was, appointed in a secondary school in Barnsley as a science slash biology teacher. Mm -hmm. um, I was really passionate about and really interested in the subject matter. Um, and I think I found, I was a little bit disappointed because I just thought that the children would be just as interested as I was. And obviously it's part of the teacher's role is to engage and enthuse the children, which I, I, I knew that, but I thought they would naturally be enthused. Uh, and I think, you know, I then had a, I got married, I had a family, I went part time, but then I had an opportunity to move because uh, I was living in Bradford and the journey was becoming harder. So I moved. So where was it you based then? I was in Barnsley. Barnsley, right. So traveling to Barnsley every day. And so I moved to a school in Bradford um, and it was a totally different school. It was a middle school. So the children were just a bit younger. Um, so an opportunity to teach a broader range of things to the children and I just really enjoyed it getting to know the children more uh, I'd always been thinking oh you know if you've got the children every every day all day every day that would be really hard but actually I, I really enjoyed that side of it um, there were a lot of um, English with additional language learners so that was a real challenge to me because I had not experienced that before um, and so the strategies that you then have to start thinking about make a lot of sense to you know any learner but we we had to employ those strategies really to engage the addition to make it easier for them to access what we were trying to teach so paraphrasing and speaking very clearly and uh, lots of repetition tasks and things like that putting things in different orders looking at the language as well as the 
subject content, uh, you know, so those strategies were really important and I think they are important anyway, really. They, they serve teachers well, but, you know, it was one of those things that we really had to think about. I loved teaching at, at that middle school, uh, but then Bradford uh, underwent a restructure and they effectively got rid of middle schools and so um, a, an opportunity came up in, an, in a, a neighbouring authority in Kirklees um, and I was successfully appointed as the leader of science in that particular school, another middle school. Very different though because the, it was a much more affluent area um, which didn't have, uh, there, there were very few EAL learners. So again, a change of approach, you know. Um, but again, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I think every school I've taught at, there's been something to get your teeth into. And it was outdoor learning there, but adventurous um, outdoor learning. So I used to lead the children and we, we used to go to the Lake District and, and we did things like climbing and uh, canoeing, things like that, which was really good. And again, as part of a, an outward bound experience, you get the children, the children get to know you on a different level and you get to know them on a different level, which was really, really interesting. But I really, I think that was where I um, found that, you know, I was questioning things and why is that, why, why that decision? And, and I thought, well, you know, some, I, I did, um, have a word with one of my leaders and he, he said well maybe it's time that you started thinking about your own leadership journey and that's the point at which I applied to move into more leadership position I mean I had been a leader there but you know more clearly defined leadership role so I became the assistant head of the primary school in Bradford really enjoyed that and that as my first primary um, school I loved it just as, you know, in the same way that I'd liked to move from secondary to middle and teaching more children for more of the time and different subjects. That I just thought, well, why haven't I done this all the time? Because I really ha enjoyed having my own class. I can remember being really, really worried about, oh my goodness, I've got to get these year six children through their SATs in their English. But it just, uh, you know, I've I've got a love of teaching English that I didn't know I'd had at the time and um, it, I just loved it. But I also loved the opportunity to lead different strategies across school for school improvement. Um, the, it, assessment for learning was high on the agenda at the time and that became my little baby there and so we did an awful lot in terms of um, developing whole school strategies to support assessment for learning. Um, so that children, uh, it was more about um, the adults engaging with the child and making it accessible for their learning rather than children should just be expected to learn. And I think that's been a bit of a shift, um, certainly in, from when I started back in 1986 to now, it, that, that the sh there's been a definite shift in that direction. Uh, and from there, um, I applied and became the deputy head in, a in another primary school uh, which I then became the head as well. So I, I I look back now and think, well, I really started that job as soon as I was appointed as the deputy because I was the, the head was um, she she clearly had the intention to retire and left me to do an awful lot of things. Um, you know that um, I I think you know 
to put it bluntly, you know, she was grooming me for the headship position, uh, helping me to learn the craft of headship by letting me um, undertake all these different responsibilities. And that was, again, re another really interesting school back into the realms of EAL and dis huge disadvantaged uh, population in terms of uh, poverty, etc. But rich in terms of, you know, character, personality um, uh, and what have you. So another really, really interesting school. Um, a lot of um, child protection work to be done there and that was a really huge eye-opener. I saw things that I thought actually this doesn't really happen to children until I went to that school and then you know you realise actually there are children you know in, in the city that you've lived in all your life that do suffer these awful things and that was a big eye-opener. Um, not the pleasantest side of the job, but you know, ne nevertheless, an eye opener. So a lot of time spent on that as well. And then, obviously, um, I became the head. And it, at the point at which I became the head, I think the local authority had been waiting until the head retired, and then they literally pounced. It felt like they'd just pounced on me and. Liz, you need to do this, that's not good enough, what about this, what about that, what about the other? And so it was, we really, I, I felt that I really was sort of in the deep end, if you like. And again, it was something that I really relished. Um, and I don't look back and think, oh, that was dreadful. I look back really fondly. They were very exciting times. You know, some people think, you know, with that pressure, you know, people buckle, don't they? And, you know, I'm not, here to say whether that's right or wrong, but I just really relished the opportunity and tried to just grab it and get on with it. Anyway, as part of um, what we were doing in school, I'd, um, in the Easter holidays, I, I took a party of children to Turkey uh, on an exchange visit. It was part of a, a group of um, about seven schools across Europe. And that went really well, and we were due to come home. And um, the ash cloud, I don't know if you remember, but um, in 2010, a volcano in Iceland erupted and there was this big ash cloud and it virtually ground all air traffic to a standstill. So we were stuck in Turkey for a week. And the children were, looking back, they were so good. We, we got a bit of a, a regime going. We had a bit of, you know, we did have some lesson time and then, um, we'd take them to the park and being twinned with a school we actually went into their school as well so in some ways it was so good because we saw the re what a real child in Turkey would experience rather than it being a planned visit where we go on these excursions and go here and go there and we meet the children but in a bit of a false environment uh, they did see what how real children in Turkey go to school and what they experience so that was a real positive but the children obviously thinking we're away from mummy and daddy for a week they were a little bit homesick um there was limited contact with the parents we had to, we we kept in contact through school one of the things we felt very strongly about was that if we let the children ring home that would make things perhaps worse so we did keep in contact through school but nevertheless i think we were all heaving a huge sigh of relief when we got to find that we were on a flight that Saturday. 
no more than me because in in my absence um, school the summer term had started again and Ofsted had called um, now in those days and I say in those days it's only um, nine years ago but um, you got the call and then you got a couple of days in between so they'd, they'd called on the Friday and they were coming on the Tuesday so I hopped off the plane on the Saturday morning after being overnight really traveling and um, just rushed into school it was a it was the feeling was as though I was a new mum and my baby had been taken away from me it was a really really stressful experience but it, it the Ofsted inspection went better than we could have hoped and um, it was a we didn't get a good inspection but it was in again in those days satisfactory which and we'd fully been expecting to have to um, go into a category so that that was a good experience and it was really good for me as a, as a new head because it charted it was like a marker really for me about all the work that we had done in about three months and then our journey forwards so that that was really good from there I became this the school became an academy and I, I and I then came to Thornton primary in 2014 as a consultant head um, and then applied for the substantive position and got that so I've been here ever since. So you mentioned then that you taught EAL pupils um, and obviously it was quite a number of years ago and I was just wondering how has EAL teaching do you think changed um, in comparison to now and sort of in the 90s when you were teaching it before I mean are there any differences you know is there more or less children with EAL difficulties what are your thoughts? Um, the strategies are very similar. The, the, there, isn't, there hasn't been a huge shift in, in strategies. Um, sometimes in teaching, things go in and out of fashion. And I think we're at a stage now where um, we want to engage le all learners, whether they're EAL, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, but to make them really interested and hooked into their learning and let them get on with it. So a more independent approach from the children where we can then help them. So in that respect, it hasn't really learned. I think perhaps we did a lot more for them. There was a lot more scaffolding of their writing maybe. Um, whereas I think now the scaffolding is um, after they've had a go and teachers generally know what children can cope with and what they can't cope with, what they need. So I think, generally speaking, the strategies are very similar, but there's been a slight shift in maybe teaching styles generally, which obviously affects the EAL learners as well. The number of EAL learners, I think if you looked at the population as a whole, it hasn't increased or decreased. Obviously, there are pockets where the percentage in certain schools is uh, high or low. It's average here at Thornton Primary School. But obviously there's, so while I was in my first headship in that particular school, things did change because a lot of children arrived new to the country from Eastern European countries um, and our infrastructure was very, very good in terms of the South Asian communities and their language needs. But we had to act very quickly then 
with other, other languages from African countries, from Eastern European countries. So I think what we experienced was a much broader range of different languages. And I, w I would say that's how things have changed. However, that hasn't really been the case at Thornton. Um, the majority of our learners are white British heritage, so um, most of them have English as a first language. So obviously you mentioned being stranded abroad in Turkey with children. I mean, I just cannot imagine. Um, how did you how did you support everybody? So you'd have had to support the children, you'd have had to support the staff that you were with. I mean, how did you sort of hold that all together and how did the children and the parents react? Well, the children that we had came from two schools and the staff, even though I would have thought, what a fantastic opportunity, because it was the Easter holidays, it was really only the leadership that we could coerce to come. Uh, so we had uh, leaders from the two schools, including myself and um, the children. And so keeping the staff morale wasn't really a problem, you know. Um, but the children, we, we had a regular routine in place. They had learning every morning. We commandeered a section. The hotel were fantastic. They let us have a room in the hotel just to do a bit of writing and what have you every morning. We went, obviously, we, with it being in Turkey, the weather had started to pick up for the summer, so we were able to spend time in the park in the afternoon. We were able to go to the school, and the children had made friends with the children there. So, generally speaking, I look back and I think, well, I can't think of the times where we had lots of problems, but there were times when the children just wanted to get back to mum and dad and what have you. And Thank goodness we didn't have to deal with the parents who I'm sure were more anxious maybe even than the children because it's a you know they just didn't know what was going on and that, and that was difficult but thankfully that was being dealt with by staff back at school so all in all I look back and I think well what an exciting adventure <laughs> so. absolutely absolutely <laughs> right then so another thing um then, so you've talked about becoming um, an academic twice throughout your career. Um, so in terms of budget, so obviously that is um, a big topic in education at the moment. How did you find um, that the budgets were different um, when you were in a local authority school and also in an academy? The difference in the funding that you get is really insignificant. Certainly the way that it's managed is different. It's a different financial year, so it's September. It's, a, it's in line with the academic year, which is in some case, you know, a lot of things, for a lot of things, that's much easier to manage the money uh, from that side of things. But then if you're buying into authority services, they still run from April to April, so, but it, 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 it's negligible really, the, the difficulty. Now at Thornton Primary School, we're part of Focus Trust, and um, we pay a corporate support fee of 5% of our GAG, which is the funding that you get per pupil. Uh, but out of that, we get an awful lot more support than we would have done with the local authority because just, the support just isn't there. So we have a school improvement partner who visits school regularly, undertakes a range of different things. We have six consultancy days a year which we can choose so we look at our school priorities and think well that would be really good to have some input uh, for CPD in terms of 
of that particular thing. So, you know, this person will be able to come and deliver that to our staff. We have times where the teachers are invited to meet together in certain year groups. So they meet in the schools across the trust to do moderation and to have input in terms of English and maths curriculum. So all in all, we get much more support which really negates the corporate support fee that we actually pay. But in terms of the funding, it's exactly the same. It just comes from a different, a different place, really. So what are the knock-on pressures then of a dwindling budget? Because obviously the budget's not technically going down, but they are technically going down. Um, and what are the pressures um, sort of associated with that? Well, we foretold this. Oh, four or five years ago, there were, you know, there were big red flags flying about budgets. You know, those messages were coming through clear, uh, clear and strong from the DfE. And so we were able to be a bit proactive and think about that in, in, in terms of our forecasting for the future. We've had, we've undergone two restructures in those four years. I think we thought the first time we did it, and it was quite a drastic restructuring of staff, we lost a, sig a significant number of support staff. I think it was 16. And we thought that would actually keep us, you know, keep the wolf from the door, if you like. We've undergone another restructure very recently in which we've lost one of our senior leaders. Our deputy head has been made redundant. And still, our forecast is showing that th there are very tricky times ahead. So the actual impact is that children, it, it's on children at the end of the day. I could say that it's on staff, but when you knock that down further, the, the impact is on children. And I listened, actually, because it's something, obviously, that is very dear to my heart. You know, I, I would love to be able to say, yes, have another couple of support staff in that year group or there or there and I noticed that it was being debated in Parliament on it uh, back in March and I just googled I thought oh, I wonder how that went and I did google it and it's a, it's when I found out you can actually download transcripts of things that are, you know any bills that are heard in Parliament etc any um, discussions that I had and Everything was very, very positive in terms of, you know, we must do something about this uh, funding crisis that schools are experiencing. But right at the end, it was cut short almost by a politician that came in and said, well, school outcomes are going up and the impact is, is not there. Therefore, schools, the, the line that we keep being fed is funding has never been better for schools. And then he, he sort of said, well, you know, the outcomes are going up as well. So there's obviously not a problem. And I just thought, well, that is because the teaching profession and staff who work in schools are so dedicated. We're dealing with children who are the most vulnerable section of our population, if you like, and they won't let them fail. So staff are just working harder to cover for the absence of other staff that can't be there because of you know the budgets have been cut for resources that aren't there um for for a number of you know for social services that aren't there anymore and and they do and and the workload for staff has increased in line with the dwindling budgets thank you 
So do you think then that schools spend their budgets effectively? I don't think schools have a choice but to spend their budgets effectively. And obviously we have a business manager who, you know, that's her, her role. But she does that in conjunction with me and other members of the leadership team. There aren't many sort of questions about, oh, would, wouldn't it be nice to do this strategy? Where can we find the money to do that? It's more about, have we got enough money to keep the staffing in place? Uh, we know that we've got children coming in with needs and we might need extra staff to do this, that or the other. Have we got enough money to do that? Uh, we can see that there are developing needs in XYZ year groups. Have we got enough money to further to, to add additional staff in there to support the children's needs or resources or employ external agencies? And the answer now is going to be no, but it would be about playing around with different pots in the budget so that we can actually, it's prioritising really, so that we can actually look at, well, is it really important to have this member of staff and how would we be able to do it? What else, but something would have to be cut. We've got to the point where we, schools run on a system whereby we can show an in-year surplus or deficit and then that carries forward into an overall surplus or deficit. Well, at the moment, our, we've, our overall is in surplus, but from next year, we, we're looking, we're forecasting an in-year deficit. And after that, it's what are we going to do? So my business manager keeps coming to me and, and she's saying, well, can we vertically group these classes in across year four and five? And so I'm saying, well, that's not really something that would be ideal at all because the children are just so, they're at different stages of their education, et cetera, et cetera. But it's something that we're being asked to do. She Obviously, she's got that pressure coming uh, above from our financial lead within the trust. And then he's got the pressure from uh, the Education and Funding Agency who are basically saying schools must not return negative budgets uh, or deficit budgets, should I say. So. His hands are tied, but while schools are returning budgets that are in surplus, the government has a stronger argument to say There's, everything's okay. But what they don't see are all the cuts that we're having to make and all the choices that we're having to make and the impact that it's having on the children. And the interesting thing that um, I sort of picked up on your answer there was that you didn't really talk about anything other than staff. So it's all about staff. So then you've got to think about where the other things come from because yes. schools don't just run on staff. No. You know, there's the building, there's the lighting, um, you know, there's the resources, but there's yeah. the resources that you can't scrape on, like the books and the pencils and things. Um, yet, obviously, it's got down to, I would say, the most important thing where you're deliberating over whether you can have a member of staff to yeah. support a child or not. And that's because staffing is the biggest percentage of the budget. Fixed costs like the electricity, the water, things like that, we have to pay. But the staffing accounts for 75% roughly of the budget. And really, um, if we're going to make any savings, that's the only place that we can look because other things are so negligible in comparison. They're still real costs, but they form up such a small percentage of the budget that the, the only real saving is to look at staffing. 
I think we've pared everything back and it is quite worrying really about what's going to happen over the next few years because we just don't know what else there is to cut on. You know, you know, we've made some really serious decisions in terms of what we can afford going forwards and we you know, like recently we've we've lost our deputy head and actually those are last resort kind of things and, and yet we're still being I've been asked to put a plan together to show how we're going to um, steer our way through the next few years without presenting a deficit budget. Well the only thing we can do is look at staffing because that's the biggest proportion of the budget. Thank you. So you've talked about staffing issues uh, with the budget so what's the knock-on effect then um, for children with additional needs? Right well often the needs can be met quite easily you know children who come to school in the morning who just need that bit of TLC you know we, c we can sort that out when they come to school a meet and greet and, it, and they feel safe and the, they can settle into their learning but some children don't settle in the same way for instance you know we've had a few children who need more of an alternative curriculum and when it comes to the point where the children don't engage with other children we're looking really at quite severe and complex needs. Obviously we talk to parents um, and try and glean as much information as we can. We try to support parents as much as we can. We try to help, you know, we try to glean their support for, for, for us as well. You know, we're doing this, but this didn't seem to work. What, what else could we do? The teachers obviously plan for those additional needs in terms of learning and pastoral care. But there comes a point beyond which we have limited resources. I mean, in terms of adult support, that's very expensive, obviously, and uh, something that we struggle to put in place or we put it in place at the expense of other children. Obviously, in, in the long term, we would try to look for a more suitable place maybe for those children or engage um, more suitable external support. But where that's not available, we're really struggling to meet the needs of the, child, of the children that, I'm, you know, this, and it is, a, it is um, a small number of children, but that nevertheless, it can be, it can have a significantly disruptive effect on the teaching of everybody else because we're having to take from the children who need that support as well but maybe this child um, is demanding it you know on on a different level so it's a very very fine um it's a balancing act really because we've paired as as you can appreciate we've paired our staffing back so far that we're not able to meet the needs of of very complex severe difficulties that some children are presenting with so as a company, uh, we're running a life-work balance campaign. So it's something that's really important to me. Um, so in your school, how do you tackle that just <laughs> impossible problem of life-work balance? Well, as you can probably understand from what I've said, um, shortage of staff means that uh, other staff will just, they're so committed, they will not let the children down that the bottom line is you know we will keep going and you know work harder and what have you however school has committed as as much as it, it's something that i feel very strongly about in terms of being able to say 
I tried my best. You know, if I can look back and think that I've tried my best for the children, for the staff, um, then I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be happy. And so we've tried uh, a number of things. I mean, we've, we have CPD days, training days throughout the year. One of the things with, that we did this year was to have more of an engaging and fun aspect to it. So we, um, we had a happiness day whereby um, we had somebody who came to train us, uh, Jeanette Bassenwood. Um, she's just really funny. And she uses her, she draws on her experience as a teacher to tell really funny anecdotes that you can all identify with. And it just makes you reflect and think a little bit more positively, perhaps. Uh, everybody, the feedback was really good anyway. And so CPD is really important. We've tried to put in um, a system whereby people who, staff who are leading extracurricular activities could maybe uh, have a day off. So they would, over a half term, where they lead uh, six sessions, perhaps, of, of something after school, um, where it's convenient, we can give them a day off. Um, just, to, just every little helps, really. We've looked, we, ha we try to have a happiness injection in every staff meeting so that staff are reminded, you know, to be positive and to look on the positive side and to learn to laugh, really, you know, to have a laugh together. And it doesn't always work, but we, we feel that it's important that we do maintain that positivity where we can. Um, certainly in terms of the tasks that are we ask our teachers to do. We're mindful really of things like that in terms of extra paperwork or admin or whatever. The trust are mindful of that as well. So they've tried to reduce the number of uh, times per year when we collect data, which needs inputting into the system. And to trust teachers more because they do a great job and they're very professional to, to you know, They've got a handle on that. You can tell when you speak to them, they've got a handle on the data they, because they know the children. And so to trust that rather than to input data all the time and to monitor that, you know. And at the end of the day, though, there's, there's not a lot that we can do in terms of our reduced staffing to, to alleviate the problems that are going to be created for other people. I've taken an awful lot more on, so has my other de we had two deputies so as my other deputy and other leaders within school you know just so that that doesn't filter down too too much um we're looking at writing some summary reports for the summer we've done our annual report which staff worked to do that uh, so we're looking at more of a mail merge so that they're not having to write out a list of reports basically that they can it can be a very quick job they just have to fill a spreadsheet in with some uh, words really into good bad you know that that kind of thing so that they're not asked to be asked to write yet another report and that's another reason why we bring the annual report forward it's so that it can coincide with parents evening uh, so that we don't have to have another parents' evening as well. We, and we feel it's a more timely time, but that was another consideration in terms of having the annual report earlier in the year as well. So we do try to think of the little things that we can do, but we also recognise that teaching is 
um, it's a time-consuming profession and and that teachers also you know we, we try to coach and make sure that teachers manage that work-life balance as well so that they are making time for themselves uh, maybe I when I was a teacher I used to leave one day a weekend free I used to like that to be Sunday so get everything out of the way on a Saturday as much as I could even if that meant getting the children to bed uh, and working on a Saturday night you know I know it's not everybody's cup of tea working on a Saturday night but it meant that I had my Sundays free and I think everybody has their own uh, way of managing that so we do try if somebody's really struggling to sort of sit down and do a bit of a plan. Okay so do you think now then that you have enough staff members in school um, and if you don't how do you how do you keep that running? The answer is no. Um, for instance next year I we're expecting Ofsted and I've argued with my business manager that we need to keep an, ex an extra teacher for next year that we weren't going to have in the budget. But my assistant heads need some release time so that they can lead and, you know, um, help us to move, to carry on moving forward. It's an important time. No, on another level, um, because the number of children that need our support. So I've got in each mini key stage, if you like, so year five and six together, there's six classes, year three and four together are six classes. I've got four additional um, members of staff. So that doesn't mean, that means that there isn't enough of one per class. One of those members of staff is um, a behavior, member of the behavior support team. So they will, and I don't want you to think by that that we've got lots of challenging behaviour and they need to wade in and like the strong arm and sort it out. It's about supporting those children who are vulnerable or unhappy or, um, you know, for whatever reason, it might be something for a longer term or it might just be something in the short term, like the cat died or something like that. But it's very real to the children and it's about supporting those needs and that's where we're really short. So you can imagine when it comes to supporting learning, because we have to support those needs before the children can even think about learning. So then when we come to support the learning needs, it, it's really difficult because there aren't any staff left at the end of the day. So planned interventions where we would uh, group children together who perhaps had not achieved a specific objective in the learning, we can plan them, but invariably they don't happen because of a shortage of staff. So I think the answer to that question is no, but I don't, again, it's a difficult one to solve because we, we can't employ more staff <laughs> and we just have to manage. And we are managing really, really well, but I do worry about the future. I know that this is not something that's possible, but if you could do anything, how would you personally solve the life-work balance problem um, for all teachers in the UK? What teachers tell me more about is in this school is about uh, having the support from other adults. So in doing the display, so they're not staying behind after school to do the display, so there are adults that can be working alongside. That's not something we can even think about at the moment with the shortage of staff that we've got. It does happen, but not regularly. And it's those little extra jobs that 
mean that teachers are then just taking home what the and obviously we recognize that teachers do work at home and we can't get away from that but it would be um, those really important jobs that they have to do whereas they can come to school then and think well my classroom's going to be tidy it's going to be attractive I know that that learning display has been done um, etc that I think that would make a big difference to the teachers here in terms of the things that they do take home obviously we've tried oh, one of the things we have done here is to um, completely change our feedback policy so that we don't have lots of written comments in books now uh, we do it through highlighting or verbal feedback in the classroom uh, but we've really cut down on the written feedback that we give um, to the children and obviously that has reduced um, you know they, they don't have to take lots of books home to pour over and write all the comments all over they still have to be marked but in a different way but in terms of other things that uh, would reduce their workload the d again the data would we're looking at reducing that so they don't have to think about inputting that too often uh, but if the, you know by the government recognizing that teachers know their children they are professional they've been trained to do the job I understand that schools are accountable but we don't do less well when we take the pressure off we we are accountable but we feel that accountability ourselves and one of the things that I think would greatly reduce teacher stress is for the government to actually acknowledge that and so that we don't have these measures that are always in place and you know which would have a knock-on effect with the press because the press love it's not just the teaching profession the press love to make the most of a bad situation and 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 that's what sells newspapers and i understand that but a change in direction which is led by the government would really make a big difference i think to the teaching profession so those are just a few things off the top of my head so money in school is obviously really precious um, what was the number one thing that you spent money on uh, last school year that you can tell us about that was really really effective well staffing is the highest percentage of the budget but i'll talk about something different um, and we received some funding into school through the Opportunities Area Funding, which Bradford is part of, and it came under Educational Life Skills Funding. So it was ring-fenced. We had to spend it on something that would make a difference to the children or to a group of children um, and not to be part of the curriculum or spent on staff, you know, anything like that. So I decided, first of all, after I'd had my little stamp and paddy about, you know, I could employ another TA with that, um, I thought, right, okay. And we spent it on outdoor learning. So every child in the school has had the opportunity to experience two days of outdoor learning with a company, um, you know, an external company. And the teachers have had professional developments in leading outdoor learning as well. And looking back, 
it's been a wonderful opportunity. I'm so pleased now that we got the money. And I know I complained at the beginning about, you know, well, I just need extra staffing. But it's been a fantastic opportunity to develop something within school that, that the children absolutely love. They get so excited. Um, there's an awful lot of learning that can be done through it. You know, um, they're outside in the woods and, you know, they've been up to Ogden Water um, in the summer term for, for some learning. So that's just one example that I can give you of learning of money that I think has been really well spent and will have a big impact on uh, the children's well-being. And I think actually um, their learning, you know, and the data that we have because they're happy doing that and it engages them. So they're more likely to remember things and to have that experience that they can write about perhaps or um, yeah I'm really pleased uh, about how I've spent that money. Excellent okay right I've got some quick fire questions for you now these are fun aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> okay so who was your favourite teacher at school and why? I had two favourite teachers uh, one was Sister Evelyn and she was my teacher for RE and I just thought she was marvellous. She was very animated. You know, she would be uh, the teacher that if you were sitting on the front row, you'd get your head knocked off because she was, you know, she was so animated. But she was just so positive. And um, I think, you know, for a, a girl in, in her teenage years, her, she was a really good role model. Um, and then Miss Murray, who taught me chemistry, um, I really looked up to her. She was very inspiring. Uh, she was a very strong teacher and, and a strong person as well. So, yeah, they were my two favourite teachers. Um, what do you wish you'd known when you first started out in teaching that you know now? I think, when I think back, and I think I've alluded to this as part of what I've been talking about, I wish that I had appreciated, maybe not known, but appreciated that um, what you're interested in um, isn't going to be the same as what the children are interested in. So I started off teaching biology. It was a subject that I was really passionate about. But actually, the greatest joy that I've had from teaching is uh, when I've had children in my own class and I've taught them everything and it didn't really matter and it's ignited passions that I didn't know I had you know before like history and um, an English as well uh, and an appreciation of the English language and I wish I'd realized that it's part of probably my own naivety but I wish I'd realized that when I started teaching because I think I would perhaps have started out in primary education rather than in secondary. Okay, so what are the three biggest changes you've seen in education during your teaching career? Um, the national curriculum, and I think we're going a bit full circle on that now because it was um, very, very free And when I first started teaching. In secondary it was different, but from primary colleagues who I've spoken to, it was very topic-based and, you know, no restrictions, that kind of thing. Whereas, and now it's, it's going a little bit more in that direction, but I think the national curriculum has helped us to think about what's important and what knowledge we, we need the children to know and the skills that they need to develop. So it's been a good, um, something that needed to happen. 
So we've sort of gone up and we're coming back down the other side of the hill now. Sats, so we didn't have sats either when I was at, at school or when I first started teaching. I can remember them coming in in the early 90s, I think it was. Uh, so that's a big difference. And the accountability that comes with that as well. There's been increasing pressure on schools to be accountable for data, I think, as I've gone through my career. And, it, and some of that's right, actually, you know. Pupil premium, although in some respects we are acknowledging that some children come from more disadvantaged backgrounds, but schools haven't necessarily had any more. It's been a sort of an in and an out. Uh, and this section of your budget is going to be about pupil premium. I think there are three quite big things that have happened. So where do you think education is going to go in the next 10 years? Well, we always hope that it's not going to change again drastically. And I do think that um, Amanda Spielman and the new Ofsted framework will be really supportive. To, you know, they've taken a lot of the emphasis certainly on data. We, we do know that we, we need to, to make sure that children achieve age-related expectations and we do need to be challenging them and we do have to have high expectations and that's not something that we're shying away from. But the broad and balanced curriculum that Ofsted place the emphasis on now has replaced that emphasis on data which is so welcome and I do I just hope that that continues to be the way forward. It seems to be that education is ever-changing uh, but I'm hoping that this will now bring a bit of stability. Coupled with a little bit more money um, it could be a, a really really positive um, future for teachers you know, for teaching and for education in general. Um, it, it, the teaching profession is so committed. And I think with the number of teachers that are leaving the profession, we've got to really, really think about what's going to keep them here. And I do think a period of stability and that recognition for them doing such a, a fantastic job, doing it so well, that will help to retain our teaching workforce into the future. Um, so, you know, my wish is for a little bit of stability uh, to, to happen from now on and, and that recognition that we're getting from the Ofsted framework to continue for the next few years. Okay, so last question then, nice and easy one. Um, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, my parents were both teachers. So as a really young child, I wanted to be a nurse or a teacher. But then I began to try and fight against the urge to be a teacher. I was always very good at helping people and explaining things. But so I decided, and I think my family had also been stronger on the art side rather than the maths and science side. So I went with maths and science for A-level and I decided I, I love, and I did love learning about that. But then I decided I was going to be a police pathologist. And right before I needed to make a decision about, you know, applying to university and applying for what I was going to do after I left school, I decided, no, I, I, I stopped the fight and I thought, no, I'm going to go into teaching. So um, I, I fought against it most of my teenage life, but I think I always really did want to be a teacher.
Thank you. Wow, that's been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed listening to Liz's story. Do you agree with the points that she made? We'd love to hear from you in our Facebook community. It's called the Teachers Podcast Community. This interview was the first one we ever did. So a massive thank you to Liz for being our guinea pig, bearing with us and inviting us into her school. As I'm recording this, we're actually visiting Thornton Primary School again this morning for another interview with somebody else. So just a huge thank you to everyone there for making us feel so welcome and letting us use their space. Liz has had such a wide ranging career and I for one found it really interesting to listen to her journey through secondary and then into primary and then into leadership because I trained in secondary and moved to primary myself. Sometimes going about things in an unorthodox fashion gives you a different perspective and allows you to bring something really unique to the role. I just wanted to let you know that the episode is also live on YouTube. So if you wanted to watch it, you can see it on there and don't forget to subscribe to the channel. So as I mentioned before, we've got a Facebook community and it's called the Teachers Podcast Community. And it'd be really good to see you in there suggesting guests that you'd like me to interview. You can find the link to this in the show notes. In the group, you'll be able to input questions that I can ask the guests that we've already confirmed. And I'll mention your name if I use your question. I've got some great educational influencers and authors coming up and I'd love to know who else you want to hear from. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and I'd be really grateful if you could leave us a review too. See you next week. Thank you for listening. The Teachers Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets, a provider of high quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk.